Lucas, firstly, thank you very much uh, for joining us here in Lille. Uh, later on today, we're going to be uh, awarding you a, a Lifetime uh, Achievement Award, um, and uh, you know, I think that reflects the scope and also the length of your contribution to, to European studies. Um, and one of the things that I think is, I think, really interesting for uh, colleagues to to think about is the journey that you've been on as a scholar, you know, that you your work has developed uh, and shifted in time. And uh, maybe it's just useful to kind of rehearse for you what's been the biggest change that you've seen uh, during your time as an academic, but also as a person engaged in, in public debates in and around Europe? Well, first of all, Simon, I'm deeply grateful for the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, it's a great honor, and thank you very much for it. Uh, it means even more to me because it comes from UASIS. And uh, you know that I had a long-standing affair with UASIS, and I was also the editor of the Journal of Common Market Studies many years back. So receiving an award now, it's a great thing, and I deeply appreciate it. Uh, my academic, my career, I think, is not particularly typical because I try to do things that academics are not meant to do. Uh, first of all, I insisted on interdisciplinarity. I started as an economist, and then I moved on to do international relations. My thesis at Oxford was on European monetary integration against all the advice of my senior colleagues and supervisors who thought, you know, first of all, it makes no sense. And second, why should I try to deal with such big issues? Let's concentrate on something very specific and be able to handle with it, handle it properly. And my book, my thesis on European monetary integration came out when EMU was deader than a dead duck. And I had the audacity, I think, to argue, I was still 25 then, that EMU was dead temporarily, but it was going to come back, and I was trying to explain political and economic reasons why this was going to be so. And uh, when I started teaching at Oxford, and I, got, I was lucky to get the first research fellowship in European studies at Oxford, which was also strange because it was given to a Greek and remember, at the time, Greece was not even a member of the European community because it was before 1991. So it showed remarkable open-mindedness. Uh, and uh, I got that fellowship, and uh, I became a member of both the politics and the economics departments of Oxford University, which was strange. It didn't happen. And I also remember that uh, most of my politics colleagues thought I was an economist, and the economics colleagues thought I was a political scientist. And the trouble is that in most cases, they didn't seem to mean it as a compliment. Uh, so working 
on an interdisciplinary approach was very unconventional at the time, was against the trend, was against fashion. And it was difficult and it was risky because you could end up with no job. The other thing which was unconventional was that I insisted on looking at the big picture. I refused to accept narrow specialization. I have full respect for people who are specialized, but this was not for me. So my academic career, in a sense, was unconventional. I survived. Perhaps I was lucky. I was going against the current. And I was also for a long time on the borderline between academia and policy. So I worked twice as ambassador at large for my own country, Greece. I was an advisor to two presidents of the European Commission and a president of the European Council, which was fun because whatever I wrote, I was interested in policy. I was not a great theory man, although I read theory. So it was different reading about European reality from books and very different from also hearing it from the horse's mouth. And if you could combine the two, it made more sense. So that's my career in a sense. And I spent also, I had a career that moved from one country to the other. I taught in the UK, in Belgium in Italy, in Greece, and short periods in other countries. All this, to summarize, means it was great fun. I mean, I enjoyed myself enormously. I think I was also very lucky. I was lucky also in the sense that I started my academic career when things, you felt that things, or everything was possible. This was time of growth. This was time of the opening of borders and the idea that you could live in Athens, teach in Bruges and uh, fly all over Europe was not obvious at all. But it was beginning and it was one of the first few ones who were doing it. Now it's different. I mean, now our children do not necessarily look to a future that is better, that's going to be better than the, than the experience of their parents. And this is new, and this is dramatic. So that's briefly been my career so far. I pretend it's not over, because I still teach. I still write books. I don't know for how long, but I'll do it as long as I can. And that's it. Well, I. The reason, one of the reasons we're talking is you have a new book uh, out with Polity Press, Europe's Coming of Age, which is available from the middle of October. Um, and when we were talking beforehand, you were, you were saying that this is partly a, a reflection on where Europe is and where it might go, but also kind of connected to that personal journey that you've been on, those changing experiences. And, you know, when you're saying about the, that different context that the youth of Europe now have only known difficult economic situations, uh, very different kind of set of political narratives and stories compared to when you were younger or when I was younger, that you know, it was the, the, the opportunity seemed to be much greater there. Does that 
shift in the, the kind of the, the broader state of things, for, for lack of a, a more technical term, make you more pessimistic about Europe and European integration? Or, or do you think that there's more to it than that? Uh, my immediate answer to being an optimist or pessimist is that I adopt Anto Gramsci's dictum about the pessimism of the mind and the optimism of the will. Uh, the book is, I think, my most ambitious, most personal and most political I've ever written. Uh, I worked for more than two years on it and of course it draws on the experience of several years. It was written mostly during the Covid lockdowns, so it might have made me rather pessimistic <laughs> and depressed, although I fought against it. Uh, certainly one thing that changed is that for almost two years I was locked up. I mean, I had spent all my life on planes and going from one place to the other, meeting many people all the time, and suddenly all this was gone, kaput. Uh, so I was stuck in my room at home, uh, reading and writing. Now, let me say a few words about the book. Uh, the book is divided into two parts. Uh, the first part is an eclectic, short history of European integration covering the last 50 years, which is also the period of my own journey. So I call it Extracts from a Diary on the European Journey. And there I concentrate on turning points, key turning points of European integration, and try to explain and understand why certain decisions were taken and not others, and what all that means, and try to draw some conclusions. And after the short and eclectic history, I have a chapter where I try to highlight two things. One is on the economic side, the shifting of the pendulum again after a period of 20 to 30 years when the pendulum swung from state to market, the neoliberal revolution, we are certainly experiencing the opposite movement. And it started with the crisis of financial markets. It continued with the pandemic. It's strengthened by climate change. And it's further strengthened now because of the war. So this, I believe, to be a structural change. And the other thing I'm trying to highlight is the inability of Europe, the European Union to be precise, to make the transition so far from soft power to hard power. And then the second part of the book, which is the more difficult and the more demanding, is I'm trying to address what I believe to be the main challenges facing Europe today. And this has been a very difficult enterprise because I have a chapter on the Euro and being halfway or perhaps three-thirds of the way to becoming a proper currency, international currency. 
a chapter on inequalities and fragmented societies and what role Europe could play in that. I have a chapter on high technology, how Europe is lagging behind mm. and what implications it has for security but also for our individual freedoms and the protection of our values and climate change. So Europe is a laggard in technology and a pioneer in terms of policies to fight climate change. Then I have a chapter on foreign policy concentrating on relations with our main partners, actors, namely the United States, but also Russia, China, and our difficult neighborhood. And last but not least, I have a chapter on democracy. So if you think about it, I mean, Euro inequalities, climate change, technology, foreign policy, and democracy, it's a rather ambitious undertaking. Just a bit. Just a bit. Uh, I really, um, to be honest, I struggled. Uh, every time when I finished the chapter, I had to spend one or two weeks to get into the mood and the thinking of, for the next one, because it's a totally different thing trying to write something that has substance. And in plain English, I avoid academic jargon on climate change and then move on to discuss the democracy deficit or the role of the EU as an international actor in defense. These are totally, as you know very well, these are very different subjects. Um, I did it. I think, well, uh, readers will uh, judge whether it was successful or not. I learned an enormous amount. I mean, I'm the one who has benefited the most from my own undertaking. Uh, so it draws on experience and I tested many of those ideas in the last three years while teaching at Sciences Po in Paris. So every year I had a very good group of about 30 students from different countries. So I tried those ideas on them and I had feedback. And I benefited also. So that's really what the book is all about. Uh, the first reactions and people who wrote endorsements were very generous and very positive. But again, it remains to be seen. Well, I'd love to say that I've, I've read it and I could, I could kind of get into it, but you literally pressed a copy very kindly into my hand, so I haven't had that opportunity yet. But I, I think you know, from what you're saying, two questions spring up the first one is you've got these different areas you know key elements that we have to reflect on and think about their impact how much do we need to think about these things together the you know the, the combined effects and you know in the same way that we had that interrelated set of developments at the end of the cold war the emergence of the european union that link to the emergence of EMU, you know, mm -hmm. macro changes in a number of different domains. Are we at a similar kind of point now framed through, I don't know, climate change or through the geopolitics? So I think that's maybe a, a first area. Uh, I guess the quest second question is how much is, do we need to be thinking of this in 
defensive terms, you know, it's about protecting integration or a more uh, offensive uh, idea of kind of developing and you know, building something new or embedding and enriching what's already there. Now, of course, I have not written all those chapters in order to impress the reader above the breadth of my knowledge. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that all those things are interconnected. And I'm trying to draw some general conclusions about Europe as it stands today and the main challenges it's facing. And I believe they're existential challenges. Uh, let's take one or two things at a time. Uh, European integration starts essentially through abolition of economic barriers. The EU becomes more and more a trade superpower and its strength, its negotiating power is premised on the single market. Then it becomes almost absent-mindedly a regulatory superpower. But all this is happening in a period of Cold War when security, defense, are delegated to the United States and NATO. So Europe consists of essentially relatively pro Europe, and I have to apologize for this, I often talk about Europe meaning the EU, which is not, of course, the same thing, and Brexit has made it even more obvious. But it's not only the UK, there's Switzerland, there's also Russia. I mean, Russia is a European country. Uh, <laughs> whether we like it or not, geography and history have determined that. Uh, but so forgive if sometimes I use the word Europe to refer to the European Union. So countries of the European Union were free riders on American security. Now, the Cold War is finished, one of the biggest acts, the biggest act of European high politics of the EU was to link German unification with economic and monetary union, and number two, to offer the European perspective to former communist satellites. This was European high politics played by the EU, and played relatively successfully, right? with problems, but relatively successfully. So, and then we have a period of almost 30 years which international relations people refer to usually as the unipolar moment, undisputed hegemony of the United States of a neoliberal kind. Now, I am almost convinced that this is coming to an end. And it is coming to an end, first of all, because the kind of globalization we experienced in the last 30 years has allowed the emergence of China as a trade superpower, an economic superpower, and increasingly a political and military superpower. It's almost inescapable. What happened in China is extraordinary, without historical precedent. I mean, multiplying by almost 70 times your GDP in 30 years, it hasn't happened any time before, anywhere. I don't forget that this is a totalitarian regime, okay, but this is the whole package. Uh, 
So it's challenged by the rise of China. It is now directly challenged by an aggrieved revisionist Russia. And at the same time, the United States itself has become a deeply divided country that is not happy with the order that it was the key country in setting it up. Now, in that context, we are moving into an era where you have growing strategic rivalry, instability, increasingly an anarchical society, Hedlibo in international relations, and a world of asymmetries. And a United States that not only is deeply divided, but a large part of one half of the United States makes extreme right-wing politicians in Europe sound like mainstream, which means also that Europe cannot entirely rely on uh, US protection in the future, because imagine what happens if you have another Trump or a clone of another Trump, of Trump in the years to come. So in that context, Europeans are faced with very difficult choices. And this is really one of the main messages of this book, Europe's coming of age. I believe that Europe needs to make the, take the next step to becoming a political adult. If it doesn't succeed, and I'm not terribly optimistic about it, to be honest, uh, and that's where Gramsci comes, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, is I'm trying to present what are the challenges and also what it means if you don't face up to them. Okay? The risk is that this continent, which is small, densely populated, pretty rich, uh, aging, uh, a continent that I think with few exceptions can be proud of having been ahead of virtually every other part of the planet in terms of individual freedoms, democracy, inclusive societies, and sustainable development. Uh, it risks becoming marginalized and not being able to defend its own freedoms and values. And that is really what it boils down to. So it's not just a question of preserving European integration for the sake of preserving European integration in the single market it becomes much more existential. And I believe also that the world needs a European Union, and Europe in general, hopefully in some areas the UK, once the dust settles, can become again more closely associated with other European partners. The world needs a regional power that is does not have a Manichaean view of the world, believes in negotiations and is patient with negotiations and believes in compromises. Because the alternative is not going to be fun for the world. So it's not only that Europeans need to become political adults in order to be able to defend their interests. It's also international peace needs a European actor that is, believes in moderation, compromise, 
and long negotiation. And he will not come from any others. So that's my Bible for Europe. <laughs> Thinking about, so how much does that get couched in terms of values, whether those are, you know, how you define values? You know, is Europe more likely to be successful in playing that role that you talk about, about being a, a conciliatory, uh, cooperative, non-competitive, non-coercive uh, kind of actor, if it speaks the language of values, and if so, does it talk about those values as universal, you know, thinking about democracy or rule of law or respect of human rights, you know, does that, is that a strengthening way of talking about things or do you think that you know the kind of the challenges to the universality of those kinds of ideas whether that's from somewhere like China uh, or from other regimes you know is a, is a more pragmatic non-value based approach likely to be more sustainable and or more effective well I remember even Krastev who is, I think, one of the most original thinkers, uh, wrote once that Europeans have ceased to be missionaries and instead they're likely to become monks trying to defend their own values and freedoms inside their own monastery. Now, there is, I believe, a strong element of truth in that. I mean, Europeans are not missionaries any longer. They've done it for years very often at the expense of others. Uh, so, but two things. One is that we have our own values, but it would be too naive to believe that we are going to export or impose our values on other countries. There is so much you can do to influence Russia or China, and let us recognize this. So in that respect, we are not missionaries. We defend our own values. We defend values in general. But we are not out there to change the regime in China because it makes no sense in any case. And number two, this I'm not, I don't think it's contradicting what I've already said. It's nice to defend your own values, but remember, that the world does not consist of monks and monasteries. There are bullies around. Uh, there are many bullies around, close to us. But also, if you look at Europe's neighborhood, I mean, look to the east and the south, it's a long arc of instability. Now, it's nice to have values, it's good to have values, but you also need some hard stuff when it's necessary. So Europe has at some point to make the transition from soft to hard power. And I believe the only thing we can do and we should look forward to is strengthening the European defense pillar as part of the Atlantic Alliance. So you stop increasingly being a free rider and you try to establish a more symmetrical relationship with the United States, especially bearing in mind that US politics is 
highly unpredictable and can turn bad in the years to come. Will it happen? Uh, if I were to have a bet, I would say that European defense does not stand much chance in the next few years. But that's where I drop my academic hat and I put on my hat as a political animal and say, but we have to fight for it. Because think of the alternative. You were saying when we were talking about the book uh, before that you had to deliver the manuscript just uh, at the end of uh, February uh, this year and the Russian invasion of Ukraine caused textual difficulties uh, <laughs> which is I think probably in the scheme of things the, the least of the, the, the problems that that uh, generated but just kind of from that last comment, you know, does does Russia's aggression, active re aggression, in a way that goes so far beyond its previous acts of aggression, and I think that's important. You know, it's not that Russia suddenly has decided to change its behaviour. This is a, a pattern of behaviour we've seen with Georgia, uh, with Moldova, uh, elsewhere. You know, that this is something that keeps on coming. Does the strength of the reaction that we've seen from the European Union and from individual states give you more confidence that there is a pivotal moment going on here. You know, if we think about the, the depth of and the strength of the response in terms of sanctions packages, in terms of solidarity among states thinking about energy cooperation that's coming in. The military side, you know, particularly thinking about the role of Germany, is this the thing that shifts the contingencies along in a way that is productive towards the kinds of ideas that you, you're advancing in the book? First of all, uh, I did not expect the invasion. So in that respect, I was proven wrong. Luckily for me, as you mentioned, uh, my deadline for the manuscript was the 28th of February, 22, and Putin invaded on the 24th. So I asked for a longer deadline. <laughs> the started, classic academic response. Yes, <laughs> and thought about it. And I did not change my mind about what I was writing in the book but this was a very important new dimension that I had to take care of. To put my cards on the table, of course, I think that it's an abominable act, what Putin has done, and all the rest, I mean, the war is appalling, it goes without saying. But I should add that the West, I believe, carries some of the responsibility for where we are today. Because it's sometimes easier to win a war than to win peace. And the West, and especially the United States, I believe, missed a historical opportunity to create the conditions for a new stable security 
European security order after the end of the Second World of the Cold War and the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire. Uh, it was arrogance. It was arrogance of the winners. Now, of course, Putin's war has changed a number of things, very important things. So there's war again in Europe. Uh, the whole German model has collapsed. But what was the German model? The German model was that uh, you rely on the United States for protection, and you have a privileged energy relationship with Russia, and you are the biggest exporter to China. This is possible as long as that kind of globalization that we had until recently works. But now we live in a world where economic exchange becomes increasingly politicized, where security takes over from economic efficiency, and where Putin invades Ukraine. So that German model is in shambles. So poor Germans, I mean, they're the ones who really, they made a mistake, admittedly, but they're the ones who have to rethink drastically their whole strategy. Now, that increases the, the importance and the necessity for European security cooperation. Uh, the fact that the Germans will be investing much more in defense is a good thing, so the free-riding idea is becoming less and less too. It would be even more important if German expenditure in defense goes hand in hand with closer European defense cooperation and joint armament, procurement, because that would be the crucial thing. Now, European defense cooperation and joint procurement, to put it bluntly, will not be liked by all of our friends on the other side of the Atlantic. And that's going to be a difficult and delicate relationship. Uh, it will be easier when the US is run by the, kind, the likes of Biden. It will not be at all easy when the US is run by the kinds, not only of Trump, but also of Bush Jr. So we don't know what's going to happen in the years to come. So that's why I believe that one of the key tests for the future of Europe is the combination of two things, a European defense pillar and a more symmetrical relationship with the United States. Easier said than done, but at least let's make it clear. Let us not try to hide ourselves behind whatever. A final question. We're in the middle of these big processes, these big shifts, and I think sometimes it's easy to feel that this is just things happening to us, you know, that we're at the mercy of the world, um, and, you know, we've been borne along by the, the storm currents that, you know, that, that push us around. What can people do? You know, what, you know, you know, it, how do we reclaim some kind of agency in this? You know, what, what, do you have a... Well, if you had a, a silver bullet, that would be great. But 
let's assume, you know, just something that helps people to see where they can make a difference, where they can make a contribution to, to shaping these developments? I think it's crucial that we try to get some of those messages across. Uh, I've been a devoted European for 50 odd years. And this is because I was convinced from the very beginning of my studies. I, when I discovered Europe, in fact, at the College of Europe, when I was 21. And at that time, I was under the influence of Paris 68. I was a left-winger. And European integration did not exactly fit with my mental map because it was run essentially by conservatives and Christian Democrats. But I realized one thing, and this was, it became obvious to me that the only chance for this continent to have a real future, not become a marginalized protectorate of somebody or other, is unity. Because even at that time, but even more so today, the big European powers are not big at the global level. I mean, neither Germany, nor France, nor the UK can really play ball at the top table. The EU can. So, but at the same time, Europe is a boring affair for most people. Europe is boring because the language is indecipherable. I mean, there are all sorts of kinds of boring bureaucrats who get the message, try to get the message across hopelessly. So, most people have this image. You tell them, they ask you, what, what do you do in life? You say, I'm working on Europe and European integration, and they yawn because they think, you know, this is not interesting stuff. We have to try to make an effort to make it interesting and try to convince people that it is about their life that is at stake. It's not easy. But I mean, certainly the European Parliament does not succeed, most of them, in doing their job. But this is really my, that's why I write books, and that's why I go around and lecture. Well, am I, am I a missionary? Not really. But uh, I, I think this is important for all of us, very important. And it is not about uh, one billion of regional fund or about uh, the harmonization of regulations for mayonnaise. This is not what the EU is all about or should be all about. The EU, the Europe needs to be, begin to think strategically. Otherwise, it has no hope, really. Imagine, this is going to be a rich part of the world, shrinking, aging, and marginalized. And this, well, I don't know how many years I have in my life, but this is not a future I want to look forward to. Well, on that thoughtful note, thank you again for talking with me. And again, the book, Europe's Coming of Age, uh, coming out in October from Polity. Lucas, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, well, we look forward to seeing many more books from you uh, as long as you want to continue. Thank you very much.